0: And welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague,
1: and I'm Helen Thompson.
0: First of all, we want to say a big welcome to all our new listeners. It's great to have you on board. This is the podcast which delves into the history of today's politics. In this week's episode, we're turning to continental European politics. We're speaking on Monday morning, following the inconclusive election results in Spain, in which the centre-right Popular Party finished first, but without enough seats to form a majority, even with the party to its right, Vox, which performed poorly. The cat we're also talking after Friedrich Mertz, the leader of Germany's Christian Democrats, that's Angela Merkel's centre-right party, gave a television interview while the Spanish results were coming in, in which he said that the party that he leads would be open to cooperating with the Alternative for Deutschland party, which is to his right, at municipal elections.
1: Mertz's words are a big change for the Christian Democratic party and they've already attracted considerable controversy. Ever since the Alternative for Deutschland's formation in 2013, the Christian democratic policy has been to rule out any cooperation with the party at any level of politics in Germany. Back in February 2020, when the Christian Democrat party in the East German state of Thuringia voted with the Alternative for Deutschland and the Free Democrats to elect a new state premier from the Free Democratic Party, Angela Merkel said it was a dark day for German democracy. Our question today is what is happening to the right in Europe? And what might that mean for Europe's future? The leader of Spain's
0: Conservative People's Party has claimed victory in Sunday's snap general election, even though he does not have an overall majority in Parliament. The
1: new Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, has addressed Parliament for the first time. Her government is credited with being the most right wing in the country's Republican history. Canada is concerned about some of the uh, some of the positionings uh, that uh, Italy is taking in terms of the LGBT rights. The great challenge facing us today is defending national identity and the very existence of the nation states. Mr. Orbán had described Western Europe as a mixed race world, saying Hungarians should only mix with other Europeans. The globalists can all go to hell.
0: It took time, but finally a nationalist voice, our voice, will be heard in the Greek parliament.
1: The Sonnenberg district is making history. The AFD has now arrived as a people's party here on the municipal level in Thuringia. I won't let myself be insulted as being a Nazi because I'm sympathising with the AFD. For me, the AFD is the only party representing our constitutional rights and freedom of opinion.
0: So we're not going to spend too much time talking about the Spanish election results themselves today, other than the Popular Party did better than it did last time, the Socialists did better than expected and may even stay on in power, and Vox performed poorly. What seems likely is that new elections will be held, possibly in November. This will be the seventh set of national elections in eight years in Spain, which is a remarkable level of instability, really. I want to say almost British-style instability. I mean... Looking at the results, though, it's clear that there is a, a right turn in Spain from before. And that is part of a overall right turn in Europe, isn't it, Helen?
1: Yeah, I think if we look at election results in the last few years, and the question of who's in power in a number of European countries, we can see several things. I think there's a, there's a group of countries where there's a party that's sometimes described as the far right, but I think that's a complicated phrase for some of these parties Mm. where that is the party that is in power and the the leaders of those parties or senior people at least in those parties were quite supportive of Vox during the election. And that would be in Poland. I think that the deputy prime minister recorded a message of support for Vox in Hungary where Orban Mm. was supportive and in Italy where the Prime Minister Maloney actually was actively, effectively campaigning for Vox. Then we've got two Scandinavian countries, Finland and Sweden. In the case of Finland, there's a center-right dominant party, but in the governing coalition is a party well to its right, which is the Finns party. You should say they actually have been in government before 2015 to 2017. And then Sweden has a minority centre-right coalition, which relies on parliamentary support from the Sweden Democrats, which is another party, well to the right. Yeah. In Germany, there's the issue of the alternative for Deutschland, as we were already hearing at the beginning, which is of growing electoral significance, though it's nowhere near being... In power at the federal level, what we can see there is is that the AFD, that's the acronym for the Alternative for Deutschland, is either level or ahead with the with the Social Democrats in opinion polls. It's won for the first time a, a district council election in one of the East German states, and it's leading in the polls in the in the three states of East Germany, all of which will hold regional elections next year. Then there's the case of the the Netherlands, where a new party a farmers' citizen movement is really, in some sense, at least electorally, it's only formed, I think, in 2019. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Came out of nowhere to be the biggest party in this year's provincial elections in Netherlands. And those elections form the basis of representation in the Dutch Senate. And the Netherlands is having an election later this year, Oh, yeah. because the four-party governing coalition there collapsed over d- internal disagreements about migration issues. So there's a set of issues, I think, where we can see that, I should say as well, perhaps, that the, the centre-right is back in power in, in Greece after yeah, having been, after Greece. having been humiliated, say, a decade or so ago. So... The there's different things going on in terms of what this move to the right means. But there's something I think that is important in the way in which they coalesce together.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, because even as you were talking, I'm thinking of Le Pen in France as well. I was going to say Greece, obviously Le Pen isn't in power, but she's a she's a powerful force in French politics. I mean, what's difficult for me when I try and look across the spectrum of European politics. I mean, you know, including British politics, Irish politics close to home. You know, what is the particular causes in each country for the rise in support of center right or the parties to the you know further right? what can we see that's actually general to everything because the particular is very interesting i mean just talking you talk to anyone about spanish politics and they they're very clear that there are very particular spanish reasons for the rise and support of vox over the last what is it 10 years? year no even less than 10 years isn't it since 2017 uh, and that is the 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 catalonia question and this sort of unilateral declaration of independence there and that is very important part of that story in Spain and less important in Spain are things like the migration question. Now, It is, it is an issue, Vox campaigns on it, but it's not core to the split in the right between the centre-right and Vox. It's, it's more to do with this question of territorial unity. So, I mean, what, what? how do you see it? I mean, how how much of, of you know, the same with Holland, same with Greece, there are very particular reasons for each and you could just focus on that and not try and pick out anything that was sort of bringing them all together.
1: Yeah, I think if we take the the Spanish case, there's no way at all of understanding the political change in Spain that has gone on with this election, such as, it, such as that change is, without understanding that Spain is a, multinational state with a really a bit like contested territorial politics Yeah, and that what happened as a result of those two elections in 2019 was that for the socialists to be able to f- reach a parliamentary majority they had to rely on support from nationalist parties from mm. Catalonia and from Basque parties Yeah. And that then involved making some concessions to them, including pardoning the the leaders of the the Catalan revolt, right from two thousand and seventeen. And that both the Popular Party and Vox have directed a lot of their campaign on attacking the Socialists yeah. over this question, saying that that they were in some sense betraying the unity of Spain by making the concessions in in which that they did I think it was the people's parties or one of the people's parties slogan in the election was Sanchez meaning the, the Spanish Prime Minister or Spain meaning yeah. it was a choice between the two the Vox leader described the Sanchez government as the enemies mm. of Spain and if you then say well how is it that the centre-right and the party to its right in some sense the far right have been willing that the center right has been willing to cooperate in this case mm-hmm. because clearly if there had been a parliamentary majority possible between the people's party and vox and the people's party would have accepted vox in government mm-hmm. then the answer is because that they regard the question of spain's political unity as As existential,
0: yeah, it sounds like a kind of hardcore version of the 2015 David Cameron strategy. You know, you know when he had Ed Miliband in Sturgeon's pocket. You know, and it worked quite well because it was about it, it was English nationalism to some to some extent. But you could see something similar how it could be powerful in Spain and has been powerful in Spain in different regions. But they have such a different attitude to. The unit, the ter- territorial unity of Spain, than than we do. It's a very different. Yeah, I think
1: that that's the di- that is the big difference. Is the the politics of our multinational state is clearly part of the way in which electoral competition works, but here the principle of secession, yeah, is allowed, yeah, in Spain, guaranteed in yeah, the Northern Ireland's yeah, case. Yeah, yeah, it is that it's absolutely not, and for the parties of the right, both parties of the right, that this is a question of, as they see it, like the rule of law, the rule of the Spanish constitution. And they've been then willing to use, as I say, some really quite stark language in terms of presenting the the socialist-led government as a threat to Spain. And I don't think we can find any other example that's quite like what's gone on in Spain, because if you take no. the other multinational country state in in europe clearly so belgium yeah where there is a secessionist challenge then the, the politics of it are not working in the same way as they are in spain
0: no and again it's very different isn't it in belgium in terms of the the, the, the size of the secessionist block compared to the walloons in the south is is, is very different to Spain, which is, you know, Basque, Catalan, Andalusian, Castilian, you know, all of these different regions of Spain, which will all have their different traditions. I mean, that is an example where you can fall into the trap of reading too much across from Spain or any other country into Europe-wide conclusions. But I think at the same time, you can see with Vox that they are sort of pushing at the same kind of bruises that that work in in other countries as well they're talking about you know lgbtq rights they're talking about migration although as we've said it's not quite as much of a hot button issue as as elsewhere but they're talking civilizational issues european values these kind of these kind of things and you know green policies yeah. you know this is something that is you you can see that you can pull at the threads and they and they they sort of wrap around Europe.
1: I think that this is where it's important to bring the the alternative for Deutschland yeah. into the into the story because they've had I think different manifestations since their formation in 2013. I mean initially it, they were very much a, essentially an anti-euro party. Yeah. They, they were a party that was very unhappy about what they saw as the concessions that Merkel's government made to the strict rules of monetary union enshrined in the Maastricht Treaty in terms of the way that Merkel's government dealt with the, the Eurozone Give us our money prices. back, basically. Indeed, I think it was, isn't it Wolfgang Scherbel, the yeah. Merkel's finance minister at the time, literally blamed Mario Draghi, the president of the European Central Bank, for the formation of the the, the AFD. Right. Then they had a significant strengthening of support around the the migrant and refugee crisis of two thousand and fifteen, and they turned themselves into a quite starkly anti migrant party. But if you then moved on to the two thousand and seventeen elections mm. in Germany, the general election in Germany in two thousand, they didn't actually do well at all. I don't think they got any representation. Yeah, they
0: seem to seem to have bounced around, don't they? In yeah, support, because
1: I think that then you can see that what that Merkel actually having been shifted German policy in that summer of 2015 and being very welcoming, then completely changed tack. And by the next year was going off to Turkey to negotiate essentially, it was in the name an EU deal, but it looked in a way a bit more like a bilateral German-Turkish deal for Erdogan to, to keep refugees and migrants in particularly refugees in refugee camps in Turkey. But now it looks like the, the AFD is repositioning itself again. It's not that it, it's given up on the migrant question, quite the contrary, but it's positioning itself very much around anger, resentment about net zero politics, and particularly the policy of mm. the the federal German government really to accelerate the move away from gas boilers to heat pumps Yeah, in, in Germany.
0: And you speak to people in Germany and they'll say that there is a... A real, Because, you know, from afar, I say, well, look, Germany's doing incredibly well. You know, its, it's economy is strong. People there are wealthy. And also it has, you know, a, a good industrial base. It has those kind of jobs that when you think about northern England or the Midwest in the United States, Brexit supporting areas or Trump supporting areas, you know, we often talk about hollowed out industrial areas and that being a reason for the support of uh, the right or the sort of populist Right. Whereas obviously they don't really have that to the same extent in Germany. But the answer I got back was that you are getting tensions there now. So you've got the rise in fuel prices is having an effect on ordinary people, but on German business, in particular, energy intensive industry. You're also then having the tensions over Ukraine with its basic security structure and its its dependence on the United States. And so you, and then you're also getting tensions in its dependence on trade with China. So you have got this kind of pressure building on the German model, that is then being reflected in its politics.
1: Yeah, I think that that's tr- absolutely true. Is is that 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 in some sense Germany's industrial economy is just in a lot more difficult position for the reasons that you said. Tomlin was the case like say 10 years certainly than it was 10 years ago certainly 15 years ago and I think that it is also true just as a caveat though that the the alternative for Deutschland is particularly strong in East Germany oh right so it does kind of map out though it has got some sort of relationship to the old industrial West German heartland is not the place where the AFD is Yeah, that is interesting. It's particularly strong. I think, though, what we can see during the course of this last year or so, certainly since the formation of the present German government, so one... That includes the Green Party so the coalition being yeah. the the Social Democrats, the Free Democrats and the Green Party. And that being formed really not very long at all before just like a matter of weeks as like, before Russia invaded. This is the year, what do they call
0: it called, the traffic light the, coalition? Yeah, the traffic yeah. light.
1: And that that was a huge geopolitical shock to the entire German political class in some sense, and an energy shock to the German industry. Particularly those that like the chemical, like the the chemical companies, mm. in particular, because of the rising, sharp rising costs of gas, and whilst that present tense energy shock, if we want to call it that, fossil let's call it fossil fuel energy shock was going on, you had a government that also wanted to accelerate the energy transition, yeah, and was moving from focus on decarbonizing electricity into actually saying to people no you have to actually change the way that you heat your houses yeah and the legislation that's been passed for that is seems to be part of the reason for the the AFD's recent rise to around the, the 20% in the opinion polls yeah and that, isn't
0: that something again we could we can then draw a parallel with the Netherlands here mm-hmm. that you have a coalition, which is kind of, you know, in Germany, it seems like a slightly odd coalition of the, you know, the centre-left, the Greens, and this kind of liberal pro-business party. So that, you know, you could see how that is a difficult coalition to keep together when you presented with something like the net zero revolution. And then you having similar tensions play out in the Netherlands, where you have this rise of this, this farmers party, which you know i mean the ne- dutch politics is particularly difficult to get your head around but speaking to friends there you know they were saying that this farmers party is it's, it's had this remarkable cut through and saying that it has this symbol of the dutch flag f- flown upside down and that is a sort of symbol of support for the farmers is it the farmer citizens? Farmers
1: citizens yeah
0: and and you drive around Holland and it's everywhere, you know, it's on the motorways, it's in, it's in villages and towns, you know, this Dutch flag flying upside down. And somebody said it was felt like, you know, the, those moments before the Brexit referendum, where if you got out of, of London, you just saw pro-Brexit signs everywhere. You know, it really sort of caught on. And the farmers are also quite militant is 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 what i was told you and know, they're dumping manure on motorways They're they're barricading ministers into their houses with tractors you know it's kind of quite you know fascinating politics and it's all it's all based again on net net zero or, or the, the the green change and you know what they would what they would consider themselves being sacrificed in that in that revolution
1: yeah, I think it's in terms of the particular grievances. It's been focused on the the legislation for radically reducing nitrogen emissions by dramatically reducing the number of of livestock and buying out farmers. I think what's really important to understand about the distinctiveness of the Netherlands case is is that the Netherlands just has a far more important agricultural sector. Yeah, than other any other West European country. So the Netherlands is the world's second largest exporter of agricultural products. And I think that it's true that the Netherlands has had a a history of what might be called agrarian populism. It had a farmer's party that achieved some success in the in the 1960s. I think there were some parallels perhaps with the politics of the agrarian interest in, in in the Scandinavian countries, particularly perhaps Sweden. But I think one of the things that that's that's interesting about this is that on the one hand, it's got that element that came out of the Southern European countries during the Eurozone crisis with an emphasis on citizens and expressing their direct demands. So if you go back to the Five Star Movement in Italy or Podemos in Spain, the left-wing party that emerged out of the Eurozone crisis there... A lot of it was, in a way, a critique of the way in which representative democracy worked and sort of saying that democracy was supposed to be about its citizens, but that wasn't what was Mm. happening. So there's something of that going on. But I think it's also true that if you look at the very long history of like of right wing parties in Europe, not so much really in in Britain, at least by the time you get to like Salisbury's conservative party, that you could say that that's what Disraeli was defending, as we talked about Quite a lot of episodes back is is there is a politics of the right around the agrarian interest, mm. and that that's what as a so then it would be like agrarian versus industrial, and that's in a way that you, way that you could put like the conflict between Disraeli and Peel mm. that we talked yeah about. But what you can see in these Western European countries like the Netherlands, where the, where the agricultural interest is significantly more important to the economy than it is in a country like. Britain, that there's still a legacy of the right and agrarian politics. And then when you kind of like add in the fact of how easy it is to turn some aspects, anyway, of net zero into a culture mm. war or cultural question of.
0: Yeah, which, which we've seen here in, in London recently yeah. with the ULAs, you know, becoming a central part of one of the by elections, uh, one of the by elections yeah. last week. And, and and now becoming a national issue, people, you know, it becomes a an idea of culture anyway, isn't it? That uh, yeah. it's the the sort of the woke elite imposing a charge on the poor to help us reduce emissions.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've got that sense then of like two different things that are part of the history of the right in 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 Europe of round both agrarian versus industrial. In a way, that I mean, culture I think used to be a bit more like religious versus secular but you can kind of translate that a little bit at least into the cultural conflicts yeah. now or at least the the legacy of that but I think also this gets to the issue of like why it's quite hard then for the party systems to respond to the old party systems to incorporate all this new politics yeah. into them because actually we're getting like a whole set of different fault lines at work we've spent a long time I think thinking maybe to further in the post-war era and post-war second world war era until well, we can argue about when but of like that the basic conflict between left and right being an economic one yeah. if you want to put it in a bit more Marxist terms like capital versus labour though obviously it was significantly more complicated than that but now we're seeing like agrarian versus the, the green industry if we could call yeah, it or the city that, well, yeah. yeah or and the culture, the the old secular versus religion, plus then when the right is defending the, the unity of the state against the claims of the periphery that often were associated with radical Yeah, parties. I mean, it,
0: it seems as if the the old divide, anyway, whatever's replacing it, the old divide doesn't really reflect the challenges that we have today, the divide between left and right, capital and labour as you were saying, Helen, that actually it's far more complicated now. And so there is a kind of inevitable and sensible breakdown in the old party structures Mm -hmm. because the party structures don't answer today's questions. We've been talking, Helen, for about the particular issues in each country, you know, the, the Netherlands and its enormous agricultural sector, surprising actually to anyone who's been there how, how densely populated it is. The Germans' particular problem, Spain's particular issue. But actually there is something going on here that you can start to draw some overall European conclusions about the breakdown of the, the party structure as it is. And this sense that the traditional parties can no longer do it by themselves. They're having to start coming up with different coalitions, some of which don't feel very comfortable for them, or whether it's a grand coalition, as we've seen in Germany, or coalitions with the far right or the parties to the right, that that don't seem to hold together as well. So you're getting this instability baked into the system.
1: I think that regardless of what's going on with the content, or the substance in each of the countries' politics, there is something that's a little bit common about the difficulties that parties have had constructing coalitions to govern. Yeah. And I think that a significant part of that comes from the fact that the centre right parties and the centre left parties, you know, pretty much most European countries' politics, has been a main centre right party and a main centre left. And they've been dominant Hmm. that generally that they've been taking a smaller proportion of the vote. Now, obviously there's some exceptions and actually Spain where that had been going on, this is an election that happened on Sunday where the combined total of the socialist party and the people's party in percentage terms has has gone up. If you take Germany, because I think this is perhaps the clearest instance is you go back to 1998 election and three quarters of the votes were going either to the Christian Democrats and the Bavarian sister party, the Christian Social Union and the Social Democrats. You go back to the last German election in 2021 and it was 50%.
0: Yeah, hence why they need three parties hence, in coalition.
1: Exactly, So that we, I mean German politics, West German politics proceeding, German politics obviously long been coalitions mm. but they tended to be two party there were two party coalitions with the Free Democrats being the ones that swung. And then even in the after the nineteen ninety eight election, it was the Social Democrats and the, the Greens yeah. that governed. But we're now into three parties in Germany. If you go to the Netherlands, the government that that just collapsed, that was a four party. Mm-hmm Yep. And it was essentially being constructed on that basis to keep the furthest right party out. As we've said, yep. Belgium, it was seven parties. <laughs> it took 500 days after the last election in Belgium in 2019 yep. to form the, the government. It actually, the process of forming these coalitions in Germany is, is I mean, not not taken that long, but yeah. it's still taking like several
0: months in sweden something similar has happened as we've as we've talked about they're reliant on the support of mm. the of the swedish democrats mm. something similar in finland so even in spain where as you say it's gone back up there has been a the, the center left and the center right have performed well they've still not performed well enough to be able to govern or form an obvious co- coalition government here you know both parties are going to struggle it seems and so you, you're, you're seeing this i Italy is obviously another example of where this is where mm-hmm. this is the case. So the, the the fragmentation of the political system in France, obviously, again, you know, there's something very particular to France going on. But you've had the collapse of the centre right party and the centre left party, and new parties forming, and it's not clear what's going to what's going to happen there. But yeah, you're seeing something that you could say. Was a European trend where it was harder to form a traditional centre right or traditional centre left government than it than it ever has been, and that is forcing st- these strange coalitions in Ireland. Again, I think about the, they've essentially had a grand coalition of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, which has created the space for Sinn Féin to to emerge as the as the most popular party. That is a similar story albeit with different consequences as you're having in Germany. And, and you can see why it's happening. If you form a, a center coalition, and that, again, that's something similar has happened in the Netherlands, a kind of center coalition, then you create space somewhere else for, for parties that are once seen as, you know, sort of untouchable, who then start to say the unsayable things and then they get a sense of public support for them. And then, It's left to the centre-left and the centre-right to figure out what to do about this. And you're seeing different tactics, aren't you? You're seeing different tactics in Spain with the Popular Party. How does it deal with Vox? Does it move towards Vox to try and kill its support? And in doing so...
1: And that looks like what has actually happened this time, because it looks like the gains that the the, the Popular Party have made have been from... Fox.
0: Yeah. And I suppose the same thing happened in the UK with the Brexit party. You're now seeing it happen in Germany. You're seeing it happen in Sweden and in Finland. And so you're, you're having this, this same story, I guess, play out. But then it has this opposite effect, doesn't it? This sort of equal and opposite effect in politics where, you know, people aren't stupid. They can see what's going on. And if you are, you know, opposed to that kind of drift to the more conservative right, then it gives you know some kind of momentum or, or energy behind the centre-left. That's what you've seen in Spain, I think.
1: Yeah, there's, there's lots there to unpack in what you just said, Tom. And I think what we can see is, is that there's these commonalities, but there are also some really revealing differences. So in the Dutch case, that the Labour Party, the Dutch Labour Party collapsed. Mm. And so you've essentially got grand coalition politics but having to improvise with not the old centre-left party in order to do that. The Merkel period in Germany was obviously dominated by grand coalitions, grand coalition between the Christian Democrats and the the social Democrats. But in a way, I think that that partly created the space in which the, the, the AFD could start to make the breakthroughs in which it it did although as we've already said that's not a particularly steady story the really interesting one I think here is is Italy yeah, because in Italy by the time of the last election you basically had a, a period that mixed technocratic politics symbolised by the fact that Mario Draghi the former president of the European Central Bank was the Italian Prime Minister and there were quite a number of other technocrats in his cabinet. But if you looked at it in terms of the parliamentary majority, it was complete grand coalition, mm. except for the Brothers of Italy. So actually the yeah, parties so that,
0: something similar is happening there.
1: Yeah, so actually the parties that had been considered the subversive ones and had been in government together for a while, Five Star and La Lega led by Salvini, they got put into there effectively into grand coalition parliamentary politics for a technocratic yeah. government. And then the only party that was effectively outside any of this was the Brothers of Italy.
0: Maloney's party.
1: Maloney's party. So what had looked like it would be that the right, the radical right was going to be led by Salvini, once that party was in, you know, a- accommodated within the system, in some sense, I suppose, trying to... Buy it of, yeah. you just create a space for the party further to the right. Yeah. Now that's, in Italy's case, I think a complicated question about what further to the right meant because Five Star, which had been, you know, started off as quite a Eurosceptic party, seen as subversive, populist, etc. in need in some sense of, of taming had brought down Draghi's mm. mixture of technocratic and grand coalition over the Ukraine issue. Whereas Maloney, as we know, has been very forthright in keeping italy supportive
0: and actually this is one of the the key splits in the european right that we're going to that we're seeing right now between those like le pen and the national front and orban who are in some senses i guess pro-russia or at least they're 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 not fully supportive of ukraine and then the other bits of the populist right the malonies the poles the vox i think who are pro very much pro ukraine and so that that is a key divider and you see that that is keeping them apart from being able to work together in the european parliament and we're going to come to that after the break and one thing i just wanted to ask you helen before we we get to that is like trying to get at what are the causes of this fragmentation and this rise in support for the right we've seen that it's obviously the center coming together and then Creating a space for something else, which is which has come on the right, it has come on the left as well. There, are, there are obviously populist parties on the left, but at the moment, it seems like it's it's more to the right. I was I was trying to go back and think of those big moments, like two thousand eight, is obviously the the thing that you your mind turns to, and you think, okay, well, you know, the the failure to raise living standards in the in the years since then the you know the shock of that moment having this you know long after effect is that the reason but it just doesn't seem to entirely fit to me i think you've got it's obviously part of the story but then you've got the eurozone crisis itself which is having these dramatic effects in 2011 then you've got the refugee crisis in 2015 Mm -hmm. wasn't it And you've got something much bigger than all of that, I guess, which is the end of the Cold War in, you know, 1990 and this sort of new world where left and right ideologically doesn't make quite as much sense and you've got some form of consensus in the middle. So that's overlaying all of this on top and then adding on top of that just general level, higher levels of migration movement and all of those questions. So it seems to me it's, I I wonder whether it's, Trying to find a single explanation that can tie all of this story together is the wrong way of thinking about it and thinking about it more as this kind of frothy, chaotic mess that's got lots of different things happening. But together, that's breaking down something that we used to understand. It was quite simple.
1: Yeah, I think that that's that's right. And I think that what we're going to turn to after the break is the way in which there is a really complex European thread to this because the way in which some of these parties mm. to the right of the centre-right parties tended to be thought about was fundamentally them being Eurosceptic. Yes. But that yes. seems to mean something really quite different. I mean, I'm not even sure that that phrase makes any sense, I think, mm. any longer. And I think that the question of what Europe means and what the European Union means is part of the, in some sense, the contest of what is going on mm. in, these, in these elections. And it has quite profound consequences, I think, for the future of the European Union, as we're going to talk about in an- a moment. It's that time of the year. Your
0: vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about Work.
1: While defending the Italian sovereignty, we cannot forget to defend Viktor Orban's Hungary or Kaczynski's Poland, once again under attack from the European progressive mainstream.
0: So that was Giorgio Maloney there, the Prime Minister of Italy, the sort of new star of the right in Europe and it's interesting how she name checks in particular the poles and the hungarians there both of whom supported vox publicly in this in this election i mean i think it's interesting as well that hungary and poland were allies very close allies until the war in ukraine in which they are on complete opposite sides of the of the page it's also quite interesting that none of these parties although all kind of pro national sovereignty skeptical towards the eu as you were saying helen but you know that 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 name being meaning something quite different now they all really want to work together to change the nature of the eu it's a very different form of euroscepticism that the one that existed 10 years ago
1: yeah i think we can see like several things going on here the first of them is is that the point of or one of the points of commonality i think is a a real focus on the question of europe's external borders Hmm. and it's interesting then that the border question in relation to russia actually then divides
0: yeah because that is a border question that is
1: actually a border yeah question but the the point of commonality essentially being around europe's southern borders Hmm. in one way or another and i think you can see the importance of this to Maloney in the role that she's played in trying to get this agreement with Tunisia. Mm-hmm. I think she was in Tunisia either last, this month, maybe maybe they're going again, but they certainly were there in, in, in June. It was mm-hmm. the commission president plus Mark Rutte, the Dutch prime minister and her essentially, I think trying to replicate that agreement that Merkel yeah. made with Erdogan back in 2016, which was to pay Turkey off.
0: And you think about those three characters as well. That's a kind of coalition. Of, well, not of the centre with Maloney, I guess, but it's a f- form of coalition. It's a coalition of the Maloney sort of populist right, the centre right with Ursula von der Leyen, and the liberal kind of centre right centre with Mark Rutter, all working together.
1: No, and there you don't see the difference. But there you would find drawing a sharp distinction between the centre right and the right that's supposedly being excluded. Yeah, <laughs> really quite a hard one to make, and it, and it's noticeable. I think that Maloney's very keen on using a language of like European civilisation yeah. in relation to the external border issue. That's not the language that Rutter is using, but it was his party in the coalition in the Netherlands that wanted a, a much tougher position on the migration issue than some of the coalition
0: which was the thing that brought the the coalition down which
1: brought the coalition down and then I think that you can see at the same time that this has a kind of history in the longer European project in the sense that Mm -hmm. this idea that actually there was Europe and there was something on the other side of it that wasn't Europe and in some sense was being kept out uh, which was which was
0: muslim essentially yeah,
1: the, well Rush, and, and also russian i would say yes yeah uh, as well is With is not
0: orthodox so is it you can be orthodox and be in the european union but russia is something different
1: you can but i'd say that even that's got some complications if you think about it as a in a very long historical perspective in the in the sense of Twentieth century, the idea of European unity looks like it's got is a continuum with austro Hungary Habsburg, Right. and that's quite Catholic
0: right. in its yeah
1: construction. And I I think that it's true that Orthodoxy doesn't actually sit that easily.
0: What about Protestant, Protestant
1: With today? it, I mean, well, that's where it's obviously is a bit. It, it, it becomes a bit more complicated, particularly like in the Netherlands yeah. case. But I think that what we can see is is that we shouldn't really be surprised if we look at that history, that actually it's possible to, if you like, repurpose, or some people are capable of repurposing the language of European unity into a more civilizational project. project. Yeah, because that's been there in the origins of the European Economic Community. Is it as it was, you know, initially from the Beginning So in that sense, I think that you can see that somebody like Orban mm. has at times anyway, I think perhaps less so in recent years, but at times he's been quite keen to suggest that actually the real Europeans in this are the Hungarians. I mean, however, kind of like absurd that is in a, in a, in a certain level. He's wanted to sort of say, look, there's a continuum of Christian democracy in yeah. Europe of which his Fidesz party is a part, but they're not an outlier that that is part of what the European right has historically been and about. interestingly
0: his Fidesz party were in the European people's party which is the kind of coalition of the center right in the European parliament until very recently and has left before mm. it was kicked out but yeah I, I I, mean you see this idea of a sort of European civilization though not just in the the Hard right, far right, however you, you want to call it, but it, it seems like it's almost a mirror of the kind of language that, say, like a President Macron would use. I mean, yeah. he would talk in these kind of ways, but obviously he sees that what European civilization is differently. You know, it's more secular, more French, really, isn't it? Then it's more Enlightenment values, that, that those kind of things. Whereas Maloney and Orbán and others are, are looking at it differently, as a Catholic values rooted in culture, the earth, all of that kind of stuff, which is, you know, that's two forms of the same idea.
1: No, I agree. I mean, there's a bit, there's something that Maloney said when she was at a Vox rally in Valencia during the Spanish election campaign, when she said, quote, Europe needs to become aware of its role and influence again to be a political giant instead of a bureaucratic one. That Mm. could be language that's straight out of Macron's mouth. Now, she doesn't mean... The same thing I think that that he does but that's um, an interesting divide that.
0: though isn't it if you if you sort of accept the premise that Europe represents something an idea a civilization and then you fight over what that actually mm. is well that's a new divide in politics that's very different from are you a social democrat or are you a sort of center right conservative <laughs> so you you're going to need different parties
1: yeah i mean it's, if you looked at it in sort of the history terms you would say that that macron's way of like framing it is really got at its centre, I'd say, like a Franco-German difference because that's the lens that Macron thinks about as previous French presidents have done the European Union yeah. through, but actually that you've now got people in the in the member states that, in that sort of Franco-German perspective, are less important who are actually challenging mm. the linguistic framing of what the...
0: This is the British uh, gift to Europe, to European of Union what, expansion. Of, of, of what
1: European Union, what, what Europe might mean. I think that we should just bring like one last thing into this, though, in terms of the European future of this complex turn to the right. And that's the question of net zero politics.
0: Yeah, because we should say that there are European elections to the European Parliament next year. In which the same things that we've been talking about throughout this episode, the fragmentation of the right and of politics generally, is being mirrored in the European Parliament and that you have these different groupings. So You have the centre-right European People's Party that used to be completely dominant. This is Merkel's party. Interestingly, this is the the grouping which David Cameron pulled the British Conservative Party out, establishing the European Conservatives and Reformists, which is a slightly more anti-federal Conservative block. Now they they have grown. They have, that's the Maloney block, and then you have the parties. Sorry, the grouping to the right, which is about identity, and that is the Le Pen block. So you have this this fragmentation there, and again you have the same set of dilemmas, don't you, for centre right politicians in Brussels? Do you work with the, those part of those blocks to your right or not? And we're going to see this play out. But as you were saying. One of the great questions here is going to be over green policy.
1: I think you can see two different things that have happened recently that, that, are, that are significant here. The first of them is the, the Polish government looks like it's going to take the European Union to court over the deadline that's been set for the ending the sale of fossil fuel-run cars. Oh, right. And then in the European Parliament itself, there was really quite a struggle this year about some legislation that was called the Back to Nature um, legislation sort of bound up with the, the European Union green deal where there was a group of right-wing parties worked quite hard, collaborated with each other to try to defeat that legislation. They didn't succeed in doing that, but they did gain some like concessions along the way. And I think that once you then put into the mix that leaving aside the left-right issues, that there's been quite serious divisions between European Union member states about whether nuclear power mm. should count as green energy oh, yeah. for the purpose of the the green deal it's not at all difficult i think to see how these net zero questions are going to define quite a bit of the the contest in the european parliament in particular the european union in general about you know, over the next years. Now, the interesting thing, though, then is, is well, how does those questions then relate to the external border questions? Once we also move it from the southern, the Mediterranean, essentially, to the the Russia-Ukraine yeah. question, because the Russia-Ukraine question obviously is so directly bound up with the the energy question. And if we're starting to see quite serious left-right conflict over net zero which wasn't there in Europe when the commitments to net zero were made in in 2019 then i think that we we are seeing a a, a a somewhat new european union political world emerging
0: yeah but i guess it's it's when the consequences of those decisions from 2019 start to be felt that they then become big political issues when people actually have to start paying for them or farms are being put out of business or businesses, all of those kind of things. You can see how suddenly that, that becomes a uh, a political issue. I mean, it, it does feel like we've had all of these crises and moments and great changes. And it's like a snow globe has been shaken and the sort of the pieces haven't yet settled. Mm. They're still, they're still somehow up in the air.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if you go back to like 2019, and the net zero commitments. It was clear, very clear, that that the politics of it was going to be a lot more difficult than it was being presented. Yeah, I definitely at, didn't the, appreciate the, that at the at the time. And I think you can see quite quickly. I think it's in 2019 actually that the the citizens' farmer movement in the Netherlands was formed. That the the nitrogen emissions question there was 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 going to be pretty divisive and was likely mm. to produce something like the kind of political backlash that has ensued. But that was the world before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That was the world before mm. most European states have sought to decouple from Russian gas. Now, that's not true of all of them. Again, we can see another fault line there. Hungary and Austria, there's not much change that's that's gone on. And mm. some European countries have been... They're not buying pipelined gas, but they're buying liquid natural gas from Russia. But if you then have a quite difficult politics of net zero under conditions in which there isn't really a fossil fuel energy security issue or gas security issue, let's call it that, and then you transplant those political difficulties into this post-24th of February 2022 well, that's something else. So in that respect, I think that we should actually expect it to become harder as time goes by for the party systems to cope with the politics that's going to be generated.
0: Fascinating. Well, I'm sure on that note, we'll, we'll return to this question over and over again as countries across Europe and Britain and the United States struggle with how to make this work well thanks for listening to that we hope you enjoyed our sprint through european politics i hope we at least brought some clarity to bear on what can appear like an unbelievably complicated subject if you did please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts oh and please
1: like and share with your family and friends in this week's second episode tom will be talking to jamie driscoll the former labour mayor of north tyne who has now left the labour party after being blocked from becoming the candidate for the new Northeast super mayoralty. And Tom and I will be back next week and we'll be talking about the long political career of President Joe Biden and what it tells us about what has happened to American politics over the past 50 years.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.